0: Hey, welcome to night school. I think I, hit, I think I started talking before I hit record, so you might not have heard the hey at the beginning, but if you did, well, now here's two hays, three hays. But yeah, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about investments. I'm here to talk to you about investments, emotional investments. It was a topic on a recent show, the idea of saying something aloud being a deeper form of investment than simply thinking it. Not to take anything away from the weight of thinking a thought, Because, I mean, that's a deep investment unto itself. But when you say something out loud, when you bring something out into the world, when you do something, that is an even deeper form of investment because other people can see it, for one. Other people become invested in it. It's why when you say something and then you say something that allegedly contradicts that same statement, somebody who heard you make the first statement will say, that's not what you said before, you know, they'll try to tell you you're contradicting yourself or you're lying. And with the amount that I talk about this, you would think that I'm constantly doing this, you would think that I'm constantly contradicting myself, which I am. But you would think it comes up in like every interaction I have, which isn't true. But uh, it is something I think about, because we are so hinged on this idea of consistency and we're so afraid of, again, alleged contradiction. I say alleged because I don't believe that all things that are labeled contradictory are necessarily as contradictory as people make them out to be. And when people point out contradictions, oftentimes they themselves have some sort of agenda. They have some sort of reason for it, which is why we see that I mean, that's one of the main political tools. That's one of the main political strategies come erection time. it You point out how that person said something then that they are not saying now, or they said this that contradicts what they're saying now. What they're saying now contradicts what they said then. It's one of the main strategies people take. Because the idea is that if somebody is contradictory in some way, if they contradict themselves they can't be trusted. They're not reliable. And that makes sense on a political front because this person is supposed to have certain values. They are supposed to you know push certain ideas, you know with the, the power that they attain by being erected. And so I understand that in certain contexts. I understand why that is one of the big dilemmas of politics is contradiction, hypocrisy, lies. It makes complete sense. But we hold each other to that same standard. And one reason for that is because when you say something out loud, you yourself invest in it, obviously. You might not even mean to. Because, I mean, we do say things we don't mean just to get through a situation. You know, if you can go to work every day and at some point, and, and not lie at some point in a given day. That's pretty impressive. Because there are so many soft lies you have to tell just to be a functioning part of society. You can't always express yourself. And it's not just that you can't express yourself. It's that people provoke you. I, I don't mean provocation in the sense that people are trying to agitate you. I mean that people are trying to provoke a response to you. They want to know your opinion. And if you don't volunteer it readily... People will provoke you even further. They will test you. And it's not necessarily some malicious plot to trap you. But people just want to know. Because nothing scares people more than a question mark. Especially when it comes to people they interact with regularly. Nothing scares them more than not understanding and not knowing. And it's the reason why people are actually more comfortable with an asshole or an antagonist in their lives than they are somebody who they don't quite know where they stand. You know, if, if a coworker, for example, or just somebody doesn't know where you stand on a given issue, and it, it brings about some sort of, it, it produces anxiety. Because if somebody is opposed to this, you know, if your values are opposed to somebody's, that person knows where you stand and they can now hate you or decide that they disagree with you. They like you, but they disagree with you, but they know where you stand. So even if they see you as a problem in some way, that is more comforting to them. It is more comforting to a person to see you as a problem and to know you are a problem than to not know. It's that mystery You know, people love mysteries. Oh, I love a good mystery. I love a good mystery novel. But when mysteries play out in reality, they create just unbelievable dread, especially when that mystery is another person. So people will provoke you in that way. And again, I don't mean provocation as in they're trying to start a fight, although that can come as a result. But people want to know. And God forbid you contradict yourself if you do express yourself, but I would recommend not. I would recommend doing whatever you can to not give in to the temptation when somebody is testing you or provoking you in some way. And there are people that you can be honest with. And I believe the people you can be honest with aren't the people who are going to hold your feet to the fire if you go back and forth about something or if your opinion changes. And I would call those people friends Although people all have their own definitions of what that is. I mean, some of the people that call uh, you know, their friends friends, that would not be my definition of a friend. And they would probably say the same for me. And I'm not talking about just being nice. Because some people have this idea that, oh, you should, you should only have positive people who are nice. Oh, th- he's not your friend. But it's like some of my friends have said awful things to me. I've said awful things to friends, I mean, especially when I was growing up, that sort of thing. But even as adults, you know, you butt heads, uh, you, but that's the thing. I mean, a a friendship has a full range of motion. And that allows you individually to have a full range of motions as far as what you say and what you do and who you are. There's a flexibility to that. But, you know, together you also have that and they have that. And so that's what a friend is to me, a full range of motion. And you're going to have friendships that are a little more, that have limited mobility. And those are still friends, of course. But it just, you hear about the sort of relationships some people have with these people they call friends. And I, I don't know, man. Enough about that. But, but yeah, you know, investments. And, you know, right now people are investing heavily into this vote. They're voting. Tomorrow is... Erection Day, which means that they are erecting a new person to be in orifice, an erected or official. And, you know, with that, you know, people, of course, they're emotionally invested. Of course they are. I don't I would never fault somebody for being emotionally invested in a presidential erection. How could you not be? How could you not be? Of course, you will be. But if you go into it with a certain tone of neutrality, if you give that emotional response some resistance, you know, you're ultimately going to end up handling it better one way or another. You might have an impassioned response one way or another, but if you go into it saying, you know, I'm not going to emotionally invest in this, you're not going to be successful in that because... The reason you're voting is probably because you feel the need to make this emotional investment. No matter how much you've intellectualized it, it doesn't matter. It's an emotional decision. Which is why some people are looking at the ballot and they think they know who they're gonna vote for, but they when it comes down to it, their hand just their hand moves to a different oval. The oval orifice. The erected orificial of the oval orifice. Um But, you know, their hand goes somewhere else because suddenly their emotions take hold, and it's inevitable. It's completely and totally inevitable to have some sort of emotional response. But if you give yourself a neutral baseline, you're going to handle it better. If you tell yourself that you're not going to overreact, if you tell yourself you're not going to lose it, and losing it could be celebrating. You might go too far in celebration. I mean, you look at hooligans. you You look at soccer hooligans, Look at those hooligans, you know, look at them, the way they celebrate a, a championship and they destroy the town. They light things on fire. Losing it can be in celebration or in loss. Losing it in loss. But if you give yourself a neutral baseline, it's going to be different. But because you are doing something, you are doing something, you are giving your opinion on paper. because That's what it is. It's an opinion that will be Recorded. And used for some national purpose. It's still an opinion, though. You are giving your opinion. But it's just like saying something out loud, even though you might be the only one who knows how you voted, because it's nobody's business. It's nobody's business how you voted. Although everybody wants to know, you better tell people. You better tell the people you love how you voted. They want to know who you believe should be erected into orifice. People want to know. And again, it gets back to that uncertainty thing. Like if somebody knows you voted, but you've given no signals that inform them how you voted. That's a high degree of uncertainty and mystery. And I hear a vote right now. Are you bad? Get in here. Get in here. Um, you know, that's a vote. Every time he barks, I I say, I give him an I voted sticker. I put a little I voted sticker on his backside every time he barks. But, you know, it is like saying something out loud where now you are invested in this thing. And if you let somebody else know, they're now now invested in that. Uh, So I would say go into it, you know, with as much neutrality as possible. And that kind of plays into the Bhagavad Gita where... You know, Arjuna is reluctant to get involved in the war. It's a war between these factions of cousins. I mean, these are relatives fighting each other. And he does, not in, he does not feel comfortable committing to this war. And Krishna, of course, tells him, you will inevitably be part of this war. You either can make the choice or you will suddenly find yourself on a certain side. And, but he conditions him. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna conditions Arjuna to enter it with a certain equanimity, a certain stoicism, a baseline of neutrality. So he's telling him, you are going to commit to this one way or another. Either you are going to commit to a side, or a side will commit to you, and it might not be the side that you would choose if you actually had made the choice yourself. So the idea, though, is to go in with a high degree of spiritual, and for that matter, emotional equanimity, And that's a guide, you know, we think of neutrality as this empty space, we think of equanimity as some sort of, you know, it's opposed, you know, ambivalence is where basically the volume on both sides is all the way up, and it's kind of disorienting, that's how I think of ambivalence, where it's like, oh, the volume is up in both channels, the left channel and the right channel the volume is deafening in both channels and i'm not sure what a, i'm not sure what to even listen to i'm not sure which channel to pay attention to whereas you know opposed to ambivalence you know the idea of neutrality or equanimity to me is when the volume is lower in each channel but nonetheless balanced and uh, with that though you will inevitably react and respond and invest 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 you will inevitably do that it's again this idea of an imperfect world and being an imperfect person within that world it means that you might not realize your ideal you might not become the thing that you are striving to be you might not become perfect I'd be shocked if you did I'd be shocked if you became perfect But that said, when you set up a certain baseline and you strive for that, you're going to evolve in a completely different way that will benefit you and benefit everybody around you. And you might not reach the perfect, the perfection, the perfection of that ideal, but you're still going to strive toward it. And so it's better to have that idea in mind, even if you don't realize the perfection of that ideal, it's better to move toward it. And I would say the same thing is is true for making an emotional investment. If you go into a situation where you do feel something, you do... Because, I mean, if you don't feel anything, you don't have to do anything. If you don't feel emotionally invested in something, you don't need to offer any resistance to yourself. And it is an offering. It's a gift. When When you give yourself some kind of resistance... To something that is pulling you in, you are really giving yourself a gift. How's that for self-help language? You're giving yourself a gift when you resist something. It's true, though. You know, if you feel yourself being emotionally sucked into something, and you resist in a well-reasoned way, in a disciplined way, not that sort of thing that people do where they're like, my heart was broken, and I'm never gonna love again. I'm never going to love another person because my heart was broken. Not that kind of resistance where it's like, I'm just protecting myself. It's not about that. It's not about like protecting yourself. It's just about, you know, you're, you're giving yourself some strength. I mean, you think about resistance training on a physical level, lifting weights, resistance training and what that does for you. And so the idea of giving yourself some kind of emotional resistance, especially when you know that this is important to you, to other people, to the world, when you know that this is an important thing, when it's allegedly important, let's say that. It may or may not be important. But if enough people think it's important, if it's being treated as an important thing, it might as well be important, right? But if you give yourself some resistance when you're doing that, if you vote but tell yourself, you know what? Whatever outcome comes, whatever outcomes, whatever comes out, I can deal with that. I can handle that. I'm not going to let this hijack me for a night, for a week, for a month, for four years. I'm not going to let this hijack me. It doesn't mean it's not going to affect me, but I'm not going to get hijacked. And so you have to do that when you know that something is emotional. I mean, there's people who, it does remind me of dating. and I, I Really, there's a certain... I get a sick thrill out of the fact that I talk as much about dating on here, given it's just not something I do, and it's been years since I've really dated, and uh, so it's just funny to me, though. I get a sick thrill out of like, giving dating analogies and dating advice and talking about girls and all this shit, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, it is, it's similar to that, where it's like, when you go into that situation, you can't let it hijack you, and people get hijacked instantly. Because it's one thing to spend time with somebody for a period of time, and then you get this attachment, you invest over time, that's inevitable. If you spend enough time doing something, if you spend enough time with somebody, of course you're going to get invested. And if you don't, you're an asshole. If you don't, you're an asshole. Uh, But, you know, some people get hijacked instantly, right away. The second they get attention from somebody, that hijacks them for an indefinite period of time until that until they dump you off, you're like an airplane, you got hijacked by terrorists, and the terrorists dumped the plane off in a desert somewhere, and then the plane is like, "Man, you know what happened?" That plane becomes a thinking entity and says, "What just happened to me? What just happened to me?" You know the plane starts thinking that way uh, that's you that's you when you get hijacked, and it's not just when you're dating somebody, and you get hijacked right away, and it doesn't work out, and now you're like a plane in the desert. You're like an abandoned, hijacked plane in the desert. But uh, it's anything. You know, it's it's what's going to happen to people tomorrow, in the coming weeks. It's what's going to happen to a lot of people, one way or another. We know that. That's the amazing thing about the erection of, of the orifice, is that We know that there's going to be a lot of people who are feeling like they got completely hijacked. And that might go on for the foreseeable future. They might not realize they're a plane that's been crashed in the desert until 10 years from now. They might look back and be like, whoa, what happened to me? You know, it's hard to say, but we know that people are going to, you know, and you think about the, the anxiety is palpable. I went out to the store this morning. It wasn't too bad, actually. It really wasn't too bad, but the anxiety was—it's it was, in the air. It's in the air, and it's kind of fun when you know everybody's anxious. There is a certain joy to that. It's not—it's not joy in the fact that people are nervous. I, I don't take any pleasure in the fact that people don't feel good. But when there's that sort of electricity, and not only do you feel it, because you know, often anxiety is very self-involved anxiety and depression are are very self-involved. And I don't say that as an insult to anybody who's anxious or depressed. It's just the truth. People become very self-involved. And with anxiety in particular, you're typically only thinking about how you feel. Even if you're responding to somebody else's anxiety, you are feeling your own electricity. You are buzzing on your own. You are feeling unfocused and uncertain, scared. And because of that though, you don't think about you don't you don't think about where your anxiety fits into this collective anxiety. You're just concerned with your own anxiety. And right now though, you can actually feel everybody's anxiety. And I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. I do. And I don't feel it in a bad way. And someone would say that oh, that's because that's because the outcome of the erection ain't gonna affect you that's not true, that's not true at all, Uh, but uh, you know, I'm enjoying this feeling, to know that everything is buzzing, to know that everybody is just feeling the full electricity shooting up their arms, it's swirling around their brains, people on the other side of the world, people all over the place, globalism, I knew globalism, I knew that we had reached that globalist world that everybody was projecting. I mean, it's always been a globalist world. Uh, It turns out that's just the nature of things. Uh, You know, someone riding a boat across the world and meeting a tribe somewhere for the first time. That's globalism, too. But I knew I was living in in a much more realized globalist world during Brexit, breakfast, Breakfast. I knew it then because I remember people I knew, typically on the left, almost all entirely on the left, giving these impassioned reactions to Brexit. Breakfast. And I remember thinking, oh, so you, you know what's best for another country. You don't like what they did there, and you know what's best for them, American boy. Not that you shouldn't be allowed to have an opinion. But it was an emo- again, these people were emotionally invested. People were emotionally invested in the outcome of a British erection. And it, it was sort of a light bulb moment for me because I'd heard so much about globalism and whatever that means to you. I don't even know what that means to me. I think what that means to me is just people being overly invested in... What is going on all around the world, and in a way that is detrimental to them on a local and personal level? That's what global globalism. I can't even say it. it's what global globalism, the global globalism. That's what global globalism is to me. It's when you're emotionally invested in something that is going on somewhere else, not even in your own country. Because I could get you could get into that about whether things on the other side of a huge country like America truly matter to you but you are in that country you are an american and so the things in america do affect you and it's not that things on the other side of the world don't affect you of course they do we are all connected because at no point do i want some sort of critique of global globalism to be some you know I, I, at no point do i want that to be at odds with this idea that we are truly all connected that we are truly all whole But in many ways, what I see as global globalism is a corruption of that idea. I believe that, I'm not going to keep saying it, (laughs) I believe that, that globalism is a corruption of the intuitive understanding that we are all one and we are all whole. And it's a corruption because I believe it's manipulative, I believe that it is Emo- there's there's a level of emotional investment that doesn't serve the whole. And it gets into control, It gets it, there's all kinds of things going on that I think we don't even know about. There's all kinds of things that we don't even know about. But I just want to make that clear, when I say something like globalism, a term that I'm not invested in, speaking of investment, I'm not invested in that. And it's taken on this whole conspiratorial tone where the people who talk about globalism are often so-called conspiracy theorists, and I'm not one of them. But uh, you, you definitely see the world trending toward some sort of emotional investment in things that don't impact you directly, don't impact you locally, don't impact you personally. And it's not that they won't in some way. The fact that you know about them at all could be interpreted as some sort of personal interaction the fact that it even enters your awareness, that it's something you can acknowledge and think about and form a reaction to, that you even have a response. You could say that itself is something affecting you. But if that's the case, uh, hold on. Hold on to your seat because you're going to be overloaded with mind-destroying chaos. If you think that you have to react and invest in everything that enters into your you know, sensory perception, you're going to be crazy in an instant, you're going to lose everything, because you're going to be unable to even hold on to your seat, Uh, so I don't know, I think if you enter it again with a level of equanimity, it's not that things won't cause you to respond, because I mean, the thing is, I had an opinion on Brexit too, that's the thing. It was funny to me seeing these people give these impassioned responses. People who grew up in Seattle, people I went, I grew up with as children, giving these just severe responses to what the British people decided to do with their own country. And it was just it was sort of a light bulb moment for me, where I was like, "Oh, I don't remember this happening at another time." I remember people having opinions on the U.S. becoming involved in war. You know, you know, it's one thing to have an opinion on what the U.S. is doing in other countries, but a decision that only impacts England. To have an impassioned, severe opinion on that, it was very strange to me. But that said, I had my own take on it, but I wasn't very invested in it. I just kind of had my own gut reaction to it but I didn't let it go too far. I didn't let that gut reaction become some kind of emotional investment because the reality is I don't really care what England does. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. I trust them. I trust you, England. You know, I do. I trust them to do what they believe is best for them. And, uh, you know, beyond that, what am I going to do and say? Do I want to get distraught over it? There's plenty of things for me to get distraught about right here at home. I have a mind. I have a life. There's plenty for me to get distraught about if I need to get distraught about something. But that's sort of that's one of the undercurrents of globalism too is that it allows you to project your misgivings onto something far outside of yourself. Cuz people already do that. People project their misgivings onto other people they know. It's everybody else who's causing my problems. Everybody else is causing my problems. That's one thing you do, is you do that to other people in your life, other people in your environment. But it's an entirely different level to project that onto places that you've never been and may never go, which people do. You know, people do project their misgivings, which they already have. You know, somebody who's upset about something that goes on in another country, yeah, you know, on a humanitarian level, I understand if some sort of horrible injustice or cruelty is happening. I understand that. I understand on, a hum- on an empathetic humanitarian level, hearing about something horrible is going to impact you. But beyond that, you know, when it's simply some sort of political decision. You know, I question that. I question, you know, how much of that is just your own issues in your own life that you are not addressing. Because globalism gives you plenty of opportunity to address it elsewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I don't entirely... I don't know, but, but the thing is about that too, I want to say, is that even though people are going to have those opinions, I don't judge them for it. I might be critical, but I'm not judging them as a human being because I understand where that comes from. I understand where it comes from to think that, to emotionally invest in something that's far outside of your own, I mean, it's not even in the periphery of your life. It's not even in the periphery of your daily existence. But I understand how you can get tricked into thinking that way. Again, it goes back, though, to people have become these little politicians. And it's been amplified by the fact that people have public platforms where they talk to people they know and people they don't know. And they have to make these pronouncements. I used the example of, you know, when Donald Trumpsfeld was axed to uh, denounce white supremacy. I got online the next day and all these people I know, not a ton, not a majority, but a number of several, several people were posting this copy paste block of text about denouncing white supremacy. So it's like, oh, the the president didn't denounce white supremacy in the way that we wanted him to. So uh, I'm letting you all know as a little politician, as one of the little politicians, I'm letting you know that I denounce it. That's what it was. It was this interesting little I don't know. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is, but they 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 felt the need to do it. In case anybody worried, you know, in case anybody worried about this random artist. Oh, this guy he he's a he's a skinny dude with glasses who's involved in niche art circles. We need to know whether or not he's a white supremacist. A, a white supreme, supremacist. I'd rather know if he's a global, global globalist. Wait, Oh, so you're denouncing that. Well, I want to know whether or not you're a global globalist A global globalist. Global, 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 you know, I want to know that. I want to know everything. I want to know everything about you. That's sort of where we're at. Again, it gets back to the idea of a mystery... As we have more information, not just on the world, we have a lot more information about each other than we ever had before. And part of that is because we do have more avenues to see into other people's minds. It's one of the reasons why I've kept social media accounts. Because you get a feeling, you know, even if somebody, that's the silly thing about it, is that the talking point has always been, oh, people are only showing you the best part of their lives, what you see and isn't really the life. They just show it. They're curating the best parts of their life, and it's like there's a lot that's coming out in between those. There's a lot of cracks in that that come out. There's a lot of things people say off the top of their head, even when somebody is trying to present their idealized life. Which God bless them for that. You know why? You know it's like do you you know when when your family sends out Christmas cards with your family photo on them, do you send the ugliest picture? People are just choosing the photos where they look good. They're just they're just cho- they're just sharing things on social media, or that uh, that show the best parts of their life. It's like, of course they are. That's what we do. That's what we we've always done. You know. Oh, you're getting your school picture taken. Uh, I noticed that you you tried to look nice. Oh, I noticed that you tried to look nice in your school photo in 1992. Why'd you do that? You're just trying to show people how your life is so good. You're just trying to show people the best parts of your life. It's like, yeah, you're getting your photo taken for school. Of course, you're going to wear the shirt, your favorite shirt. Of course, you're going to gel your hair. If you're a girl, of course, you're going to do your makeup. You want to look good, and it's like it's no different with social media, or where, you know, of course, you're going to present the best side of you but a lot of people don't and a lot sneaks through there's a lot of things that sneak through those cracks and that's why I find it fascinating and I don't mean when I say things sneak through the cracks I don't mean bad things necessarily I mean true things a lot of truth sneaks through and uh, so that's interesting to me That's interesting to me about it, is that there's a lot that manages to come through. Even though people are, in some cases, curating this perfect image of themselves, or they're trying to, again, they're imperfect people in an imperfect world, and as a result, there are going to be a lot of cracks, and things seep through those cracks. And you learn a lot about people that way. But uh, again, the reason I'm talking about this is because we see into people's lives in a much deeper way than we ever had an opportunity to do. do. And part of that is what people think. Because people have this thing in their hand, a phone, that is connected to this simulation of the collective unconscious, or or the, I guess it's not the unconscious, but it it plays into that. Uh, You know, this thing that simulates that process, that simulates collective consciousness, is what I meant to say. Conscious, unconscious, what's the difference? What's the difference between those? No, but uh, I mean, it it plays into both, of course. You can't separate those things. You can't separate the conscious from the unconscious. But that's what I see social media as. Even though I don't believe life is a simulation, and I reject all these people who are like, you think life's a simulation? Even though I reject that, we create simulations within our lives, and social media is a simulation of how collective consciousness works and as a result no matter how much someone tries to present a certain image a lot of stuff is going to get caught up a lot of stuff is going to become visible we're going to see into people's minds their views even if they don't express it themselves we're going to see the outline of things that we otherwise never would have had the opportunity to see even if we knew them even if they were our best friend we might see things that we otherwise would never have seen. And it's not surprising that in that context, a context where people are trying to curate certain aspects of their lives and present themselves a certain way, it's not surprising that they would inevitably become these little politicians, too. Like, imagine sitting at a dinner table with your friends, or anybody but with your friends, and one of them just stands up and is like, I'm just letting everybody here at this table know that I denounce white supremacy. Supremacy, I I denounce it right here, right now. Right now, I'm denouncing it. You know, imagine that. And people are doing that. You know, it's not like that doesn't happen in some way. But the way that somebody is just, especially because it's what I saw was copy and pasted. It was something that had spread, uh, you know, people are just saying the same exact thing, not even adding their own spin, not even doing their own work. It, It again gets into that idea of putting things in your own words, which is one of the reasons you go to school. It's one of the reasons teachers, you know, ask you to rewrite things in your own words. It's the reason why even math teachers ask you to show the work. You know, if you're going to say something, at least show your work. At least show people that you thought it through yourself. And even if you, at the end of the day, you have the same exact thing to say that somebody else already said. At least it comes from your voice. You know, that's why, uh, that's why plagiarism is a problem. Beyond the fact that it's lazy, plagiarism is a problem on an educational level. Because it doesn't guarantee that the student understands what they're saying. It's not just because it's lazy, it's not just because it's cheating. When you plagiarize, you circumvent the process of learning, and you don't communicate to the teacher that you yourself thought about it. And that's what happens with this copy and paste sort of stuff, where, or, or slogans, Anytime you're repeating something that somebody else do, did, and that's an interesting thing to think about, is how averse we are to copycat syndrome. You know, how, how much we reject that. I mean, some people embrace it because it's established and it's comfortable. They'll do something that somebody's already done because it, not just because they're lazy, but because they know what sort of response they will get. It's like when someone rips off a riff by another band, especially a band that's somewhat established even if it's in a certain niche. When they rip off that riff or or write a riff, quote-unquote write, when they create a riff that's similar, they already know what sort of response they're going to get because they themselves responded to that. They themselves liked it and they know that other people already like it. It's why some people start bands that are basically a tribute band to another band without actually calling themselves that, without actually being a cover band. People will start bands, and it's in a style that's already been completely established by at least one band, if not many bands. And one of the reasons for that is because they know what kind of reaction they will get. They know that there is already a niche carved out of people who will understand this and potentially like it. Except in my case, when I pick up on that, I reject it. You know, if I pick up on a band that's obviously just falling into a niche that's already been established, they better be really good or have something unique or interesting to them beyond that, because I will reject it. Because I am looking for jewels. Because what that is, what that, what this is the perfect thing. It fits in perfectly with the endless pursuit of jewels. Because, you know, as a listener of music, if if a band comes out and they are doing something that has already been completely carved out by every band in that genre, if that niche has already been carved out for somebody completely... I mean, inevitably you will do things, inevitably you will have inspiration, inevitably you will have influence, but if you're doing something that has already been completely carved out and you are fitting perfectly into that, you know, you're like a a cheaply reproduced jewel. You're like a cheap rhinestone. You're like an imitation diamond, you know, and that it sounds that way too. It's not just, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an analogy. It's, the audio equivalent of that, the album looks like that, and I can smell it, I can sense it, you know, I can, I can pick up on that right away as a critic, and sometimes you just want that, that's the thing too, sometimes you do just want something that fits into that certain niche, maybe you just love that niche so much, maybe you love that sound so much that that is exactly what you want, But it's not transcendental. It's not particularly impressive. It really is just the equivalent of copy and pasting something. I mean, I have a friend who's incredibly gifted on guitar. And not just gifted in that he he can play extremely well, but he can come up with stuff that you wouldn't hear come from anybody else. And I have a pretty broad range of taste. And without trying to be out there that's the other thing too because anybody can be experimental anybody can put a bunch of effects on something anybody can be silly anybody can try too hard to be weird but to be able to do something unique within a certain set of limitations to me is the ultimate to me that's like not getting tattoos And just working with your body. To me, body mod is lifting weights and losing or gaining weight. Body mod is what God gave you. Um, And I don't have any problem with tattoos, but it's working within the limitations that you simply have. And I feel the same way about creativity, where just a distorted guitar and a pair of hands... You know, amplifier distortion. Not that you should have to stick with that. No, of course not. But I think about my friend who just blew my mind many, many years ago because he was able to write things on guitar that I had never heard anybody do before and I still haven't. Yet they were still within a certain genre. They were still within the confines of something that I knew. But it was amazing to hear somebody be truly creative. And... Uh, He was writing his own material. What he was doing was unique. It was transcendental. And it's the same reason why you should put things in your own words when you can. Maybe there are situations where it doesn't matter, where it's okay just to repeat a slogan. Or it's okay to copy and paste some political statement. Maybe that's okay, depending on what your goals are. I don't know. I I personally can't imagine doing that. Maybe this show is that. Maybe everything I've ever said on this show is not my words. Maybe I've just been reading other people's words this entire time. Did you know that this show is pre-written? And it's not pre-written by me neither? I steal. This, this This show is just a bunch of random excerpts from a million different sources that I stole. No, but really, when somebody is putting things in their own words, even if they're wrong, there is something to be said for that effort. And that's one of the reasons why teachers grade based partially on effort. Not entirely, because effort isn't the whole story. Effort doesn't make something good. Trying really hard does not make something good, no matter how hard you try. But it's worth something, effort is worthwhile. I mean, when I was painting the house a month ago, a guy walked by with his wife. He was in, you know, probably in his 40s. His wife was probably in her 40s. They were, you know, a little older than I am, pushing a baby. And uh, I think I was caulking. I was caulking. And that's not a fun job. You know, like caulking isn't fun. Filling in cracks and gaps with caulk, caulk isn't exactly fun. It is satisfying in its own way. But anyway, the guy walked by and I just kind of glanced up and he goes, I see you there. I see you working hard. And it felt really good. It felt really good. This, this random guy who I'll never see again, pushing his baby with his wife. He just saw that I was working hard and he just acknowledged that again, it's all about acknowledgement. He didn't come over and be like, good job, dude, dude. I've never seen somebody caulk a house like that, (laughs) dude, I've never seen somebody caulk a house like that, you know, if he said that, if it was over the top, I'd be like, leave me alone, you know, but just a simple acknowledgement, I see you working hard, pretty amazing that that, it, it was inspiring, it made me smile, it made me happy, It was crazy, (laughs) you know, like just to have somebody be like, oh, I see the work you're putting into that. Does that mean I'm doing a good job? Not necessarily. But there is something to be said for effort. And one of the worst things you can do to somebody is not acknowledge their effort or even criticize the effort itself. So you should always be aware of when somebody is working hard on something. It's why, like, if somebody does put something in their own words, or if somebody does try to do something, you shouldn't attack them for it. Like, if somebody started a band and it sounds just like another band, don't, I mean, not that you would, but just don't attack them for that. However, if they are actually ripping off specific riffs, that's where I would get mad. If you're stealing It's one thing to take on an aesthetic or a style that's already been formed. It's easy to take comfort in that. You know, and and I don't think you should be mad at somebody because they didn't create something new and iconoclastic. You know, I don't think you should ever criticize somebody for not being a genius. But when they actually steal, when they literally just take a riff Of a band. And it's one thing if they're ripping off Slayer. It's one thing if you're ripping off like the the main riff from Rain and Blood. Raining Blood. Rain in. Raining. Uh, It's one thing if you're ripping off something that everybody knows. Because that's so audacious and stupid. But when you take something from somebody who's lesser known. That's a whole other deal. And that should be criticized. I don't know how you. I don't know what the proper way to criticize that is you know, I mean, maybe you should just let it go. (laughs) You know, maybe you should just let it go, not get emotionally. Here I am. Don't get invested in the emotional, don't, don't emotionally invest in the process of voting for president. But make sure you get emotionally invested in whether or not somebody is writing original riffs. I mean, that's me in a nutshell, actually. You want to talk about contradiction. That's me in a nutshell is presidential erection who cares vote if you want, but don't get emotionally invested. Whereas here I am. Like if somebody rips off a riff by a semi unknown band, they must be nailed to a cross. That is how I feel. (laughs) I'm not ashamed to admit that I care more about things like that. Uh, But it is one of those funny things where it's like, yeah, if somebody just steals something, it's like plagiarism or something. If somebody plagiarizes something, like if you plagiarize Walt Whitman, everybody's going to be like, "Okay, you just you stole from Walt Whitman." But if you steal something from some savant that you know who you worked with, who's mentally ill and lives in obscurity, you're bad. You should be ashamed. You know, if you if you steal from somebody who isn't going to be you know if if you steal in a way that isn't going to be immediately recognized as theft you know that's a bad move Um, but uh yeah just this ended up being some sort of art critique talking about erections of the orifice and now i'm just talking about creativity and intellectual theft emotional theft We hear a lot about intellectual property. What about emotional property? And it's funny when people talk about intellectual property, they're often referring to creativity. I mean, they're referring to all kinds of things. It could be business, could be a product that somebody stole, an idea. But it also tends to refer to even creativity. Creative property. I guess that's what people say too. Creative property. Emotional property. You stole my emote, you stole my emotional property. Yeah, you don't want to do that, but you put things in your own words, express things your own way, even if you're ultimately saying the same thing somebody else is saying. Show your work. I feel that's especially true right now. Because if somebody doesn't agree with me, but they say something in such a way that I know comes from them, it means a lot more. I trust them more. Even if what they believe is fundamentally different to my own values, if I feel that the work is coming from them, that they've done the work, I will have greater trust in their judgment. And it might not be my judgment, but I will have greater trust in that because they have done the work. And that's become a catchphrase. Do the work. You must do the work. And the people saying that often haven't done the work. The people telling you to do the work haven't even done the work. They don't even know what the work is. But uh, yeah, when I do feel that somebody has put some effort in, I might not like what they do with it because that's another idea just to get into the creativity idea again. There is a lot of music. There's a lot of art out there that I do not like. It doesn't. My taste just I, I on, a, on just a, a, a taste level. I do not like what they do. There are genres of music I don't like, but I have the ability to recognize whether or not what somebody is doing is good. Like I have no interest in indie rock, no interest whatsoever but I can tell if somebody is good or unique I might not know all of the nuances of it Because I don't spend a lot of time with it I might not not be able to hear what makes one group Fundamentally different from another group But I can tell if they are good And I can tell if I can pick up on some sort of intangibility Some sort of unique quality I can tell if they've put some effort in You know, I can, I, I can just sense that and I can sense it in things that I might not like On a creative level But the same is true for politics as well Where I feel that I can pick up on whether Somebody has genuinely processed something In their own way, on their own terms And, I, you know, I, I pride myself on that to some degree I pat myself on the back uh, You know, it's It's just it's it's being able I mean, it's the same thing with fashion, it's the same thing with anything, where you see somebody and you think, Oh, that person pulls off that look and they pull it off in such a way that doesn't look like they just stole their friend's wardrobe. And I don't like fashion. I like simple clothes. I you know, I I'd like to think that I could go back to any point in history in the last fifty years and while my clothes might look a little weird, I'd like to think that they wouldn't look completely bizarre and maybe that's just the conservative in me I like the idea of going back to the 50s and then being like well your jacket's kind of weird the material's a little strange to us but ultimately you're in a a plain pair of pants with a belt and a t-shirt and a windbreaker you know so I'm not a big I'm not into out there fashion and stuff but I can see people who are and be like, okay, that person is good at what they do. That person is good at looking that way. And they don't look entirely like even the other people who dress that way. And so you just pick up on that in people. You pick up on that. And to me, that stuff is interesting, even if I don't like it. And it's the same thing for opinions. Sometimes somebody will express an opinion that might go against my own fundamental values. But I'm impressed by the fact that they expressed it a certain way. I'm impressed by the ingenuity. I'm impressed by the effort, if nothing else. And one of the bonuses of not being emotionally invested in everything, or anything, is that it allows you to see that. Because if I was emotionally invested in my own values to the point where any value that is different from that, that is averse to that, rubs me the wrong way and causes me to have some impassioned reaction, I wouldn't be able to recognize when other people are good at what they do and good at their own thoughts. I wouldn't be able to recognize that because I would be so reactive. Like if somebody said something that was in its own right, ingenious, But it went against something that I believe in some way, I wouldn't be able to recognize the ingenuity of it because I would be reacting emotionally to it. But by halting that, by giving that some resistance, it allows you to appreciate things that are different and maybe even opposed to you in some way. You might even learn something from it. It again gets back to that chasm. An idea might travel against the chasm of disagreement and you might learn something from it and be more well-rounded. It might give you a spark. It might give you the prompt to think a new idea that you wouldn't have been comfortable otherwise. Because you're not invested in one particular thing. You didn't emotionally invest in one outcome. And in closing, with the erection of the orifice coming down the line, don't invest in one outcome. Don't invest in one single outcome. And don't allow your inevitable emotional investment, because we all invest emotionally in things, but don't allow your emotional investment, which is inevitable to some degree, don't allow that to prevent you from recognizing ingenuity everywhere and anywhere it appears. Because it will often come in forms that you aren't comfortable with. That's what makes it ingenious. That's what makes ingenuity so attractive, is it manages to transcend. And you never want your own emotional investment to get in the way of anything transcendental. I see a land where children can run free. So take.